The pitcher Lefty Grove has 300 wins. There are 300 calories in a cup of cereal. John Elway has exactly 300 career touchdown passes. In 1990, John Zorn wrote 300 songs. There are over 300 species of octopus in the ocean. And now, there are 300 episodes of this program. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. of my guest today on the program, Rebecca Pigeon. Let me tell you a little bit about our 300th guest, Rebecca Pigeon. Born in the U.S. to British parents when her dad was a visiting professor at MIT, Rebecca Pigeon's family soon moved to Scotland, where she immersed herself in the arts. While at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts in London, she fronted the folk pop outfit Ruby Blue, who put out a couple of great albums before Pigeon left the band and Europe to pursue a career in acting. In the U.S., she hit the stage and the screen, appearing on stage in numerous plays and on the screen in films like The Dawning, The Spanish Prisoner, which is a personal favorite, Heist, and State in Maine. In spite of her busy acting schedule, Pigeon put out 10 perfect solo albums, starting with her marvelous 1994 debut, The Raven. That was followed by albums like Tough on Crime, Behind the Velvet Curtain, Bad Poetry, and a brand new one, Parts of Speech, Pieces of Sound. Filled with sweeping melodies, lush vocals, and poetic finesse, Pigeon's new one is one of 2022's very best. Informed by her yoga practice, the songs on parts of speech, pieces of sound are focused, still, and rich. Pigeon's voice, a sweeping and dreamy instrument of true hypnotic beauty. I really couldn't think of a better guest to ring in our 300th episode, so I'm really grateful that it's Rebecca. And the fact of the matter is, I think this conversation demonstrates this show at its very best. I mean, I really think this conversation is emblematic of what we do, a focused, free-form conversation about life, about art, about creativity, and about ourselves. So here you go, me and Rebecca Pigeon celebrating the 300th episode of our program right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast.
So I was thinking a lot about what you do, and I was thinking about how, you know, the, when you're younger, you always think about mastering something. And I was thinking like art and yoga and music um, in many ways are unmasterable. And I, but I guess that's not really the point, right? The point isn't to master them. So how do you, how do you um, contextualize that kind of idea in your practice? Oh yeah, God no, exactly. You you'll never master those things, and I would I wouldn't want to be um, exploring a world that I thought I could master uh, because that would be well, it would be a very limited world. I think if I if I thought I could master it. Um, so the world's I, I want to be in in a kind of a richness. I want to be exploring uh meaning in, in various different ways. And um uh, and so I love the, the 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 oceanic, the vast, um endless uh uh I don't know, places that you can go in, in these kinds of study i mean I, I i don't in music i haven't been um trained um in theory and uh, i i think i i'm sticking much more to um yoga theory than i than i do than i ever did to music theory in those two disciplines um with music i'm i tend to be i i'm sort of self-taught in a way and um, tend to find things by ear. Um, and I could never settle down to, I, I mean, I think if I'd done it as, as a child, but I could never, I didn't have the discipline to sit down to, you know, learning about theory. I just wanted to go off and uh, make shows, you know, and be a performer and so I'm never going to be a virtuoso musician, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess that's more along the lines of sort of like the punk rock spirit, right? The early days, it was like, let's just go do it. Let's go make stuff. And, and maybe maybe theory and, and technical facility, we'll get to that later. Yes. I mean, there are all sorts. I, I mean, I think you're using different parts of your brain to be a, uh, a performer and a, and a technician, um, you're using a, one part of your brain and to be a creator and a writer using another part. Um, those, those skills, of course, can marry in people and, you know, and do in, in the greats, in the great, if you think about the great, the great jazz uh, musicians and the great, I mean, for example, like Nina Simone was a great classical pianist. Um, and then, found out, oh, I can sing as well, and started writing and just incidentally made some of the greatest music that's ever been written in in contemporary music. Um, but um, but also, you know, there's a certain charm to like these little funky bands who can't play their instruments but have great ideas, you know? Right. Yeah. And also, yeah. you know, artists like Kate Bush says she can't read music, you know, she just, and she's just got this gift from God, you know, she's just sort of touched. Yeah, she's one where I think, like, 
there doesn't seem to be any scruffy apprentice years. Like she seemed to come fully formed. Well, apparently she had many years of, of, as she said, being a very prolific young writer. And apparently she, her dad sat with her, you know, through hundreds and hundreds of songs. And then famously she played them all to, um, is it uh, David Gilmore who discovered her from Pink Floyd? Yeah. Uh, and then she had one or two gems and then developed obviously as a songwriter. So the scruffy apprentice years weren't recorded. We did we didn't the public And I think they did that on purpose. You know, yeah. they said, Okay, she's sixteen, what are we gonna do? Let's wait for two years while she develops. But she was um being nurtured. I don't think companies do that anymore. That's back in the old days when record companies were a different thing. Um yeah, I think now they throw you in as young as they can, and um, and that can do great damage. Like in the case of someone like Amy Winehouse, where I'd think like just a mm. massive talent who was just mishandled horribly. Oh God, I know, tragic. Yeah, she was massive talent. Yeah, and brilliant. There's something about a certain kind of music where I think like I've always maintained that that. Amy Winehouse didn't belong on stage in front of a hundred thousand people. She belonged in a little nightclub, right? Mm. So I think like some music isn't meant to be broadcast in, you know, at Glastonbury. It's not meant to be done that. I think I feel like Adele the same way. I feel like keep it keep it smaller to me. Mm. Interesting. Well, I mean, I know that I've always enjoyed music more in smaller venues when I've been an audience member. Much more. It's much more special. But there is something that's so exciting about these grand gigs as well, and especially for the, I was going to say, especially for the performers, you know, looking out on a sea of people and being godlike. I'm sure that's quite an amazing feeling. Um, but there isn't that connection. I mean, I've played in a couple of times in very large venues and you do feel a sense of isolation. Like there's a, there's like a mile between you and, any audience member, you know, there's this vast stage and then a huge cavernous pit and then space and all these roadies and stuff. And then the audience, you do feel a weird sense of what am I doing? <laughs> and this, this sound is coming out and you think is that huge, enormous sound coming from me. It's a weird feeling. I mean, you would think it would make you feel bigger, but it would definitely, I see how it can make you feel smaller. I don't know. I think you, if you're really talented, I mean, there's some people who just can really work it. When I was a kid, I thought Freddie Mercury was nine feet tall. Oh God. Yeah. Well, he was, wasn't he? Yeah. I mean, he, mm -hmm. that to me, like, right. Like Queen would works perfectly in that. Then yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe, you know, like, I don't know. It's, um, it's a tricky thing because you want to obviously you want to play and share it with people, but sometimes this is not not the right thing to do. Um, do you think about your your live shows? Do you think about are you very selective with how you the venues that you play at? Are you some that you go where you say maybe that's not appropriate for me? Maybe I'll turn that one down. Uh, no, no, I, I'm I play at venues that just want that want to host me i just feel grateful that they want to host me and and yeah um and i love that and i'm 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 loving playing live actually i'm getting some shows ready right now because i've got this album as you know do you know coming out oh, yeah. in <laughs> september um 
<laughs> and so I'm playing a show at Joe's Pub, which is a fantastic venue in New York. It's a very legendary venue. I've played there before. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that in September on the 19th. And then I'm playing at another great venue here, kind of a landmark called McCabe's. Do you know McCabe's? Sure. It's fantastic. Um, it's been here for many years. It's a guitar shop and it's got this venue in the back and you feel like you're walking into the sixties when you walk in there. Um, that's on September 24th in LA. Um, so I'm getting, I'm actually rehearsing with very various different groups of musicians on, on different coasts. The, the thing about a live show is that, I mean, anything could happen. It reminds me of, of the theater where even though the lines are delivered the same in a play, the experience is different from night to night, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, right? Yeah, hugely different. Yeah, each show is just completely... There's so many things to go wrong. And also <laughs> right, you know, and so many happy accidents, you know? Um, yeah, you have... That's, that's the one of the exciting, great things about live shows is you just... Do not know what's going to happen. And you, you, you've done your best. You know, you've struggled and you've kind of tried to iron out every possible thing. But there's always something, always something. Is it good to, I, I heard some actors will prepare bits when they go on the night, like the Tonight Show. Is it best not to do that? Is it best to go in there and just see what happens and who knows what you're going to say between songs? Oh, I don't know. I mean, uh, I think that on those shows, those shows are highly scripted. I think if you're a guest and sitting on the couch, you know, you, you are interviewed beforehand and they kind of know what you want to talk about. And then they have a team of writers to work on the, you know, the, the, what the, what the host is going to say. So there's, there's a bunch of preparation for those shows. Um, for the musical artists, I mean, I've been on, I was on Conan O'Brien and, um, that wasn't at all scripted. We just went on to play, but we, you don't speak. You just play a song and, mm. and then, and, and you're kind of whisked around by a sta staff members and you don't really see anybody or, um, yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit strange. But when you play live, do you think like, I'm going to here, I'm going to prepare a couple of bits for here. I'll say this between the first and the third song or, or do you let yeah, it happen? Yes. Um, that's, that's a good question. I mean, I, I've seen people do all sorts of different ways. I mean, I, I went on tour with Mark Cohn for quite a while for a couple of years. Um, and he is a great raconteur and just talks quite a lot and is quite funny and, <laughs> Um, very comfortable up there. And um, as opposed to someone like me, I'm like, oh, Christ, what am I going to say now? <laughs> um, I better think of something like, um, but I find that I'm actually, it's better when I'm, um, I, I speak as little as, po as possible, but also, or, or, or if I'm, have an idea of something I want to, let the audience know, uh, but haven't got anything really scripted or anything. Just it, 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 it's a bit more natural that way. 
Then there's the Dylan way where he just says nothing. Yeah, I mean, he he doesn't really have to say anything. No, no, he doesn't. <laughs> I, I imagine there's a temptation. So I was telling you, I teach college and like in my morning class, I'll say something not planned and it's a, and it lands really well. And the, and the class laughs and it feels really like that was a good, and then I'll teach the same class in the afternoon, Rebecca, and I'll, I'll use that line because it worked and it doesn't work. It never works twice. Yeah. Um, which has been for 30 years, the great mystery of my professional life. Uh, um, uh-huh. So for you, if you're at McCabe's and you just freestyle and you say something and it lands really well and you think, maybe I'll use that when I play Joe's mm-hmm. or I'll use it when I play. No, I've had very similar experiences. Yeah. absolutely. Where I've said something and it worked. So I repeated it and it just was like crickets. Yeah. It, it has to come from the place i suppose of where you've just had the idea and it's it's just struck you and so if it strikes you for the first time and it's funny every you know it's going to be the same experience for your listeners that's that's one of the tricky things with acting especially in a comedy uh, in a comedy play is getting those um, moments to work every night um, to be fresh every night. Uh, I mean, that, that's a great skill. That's a great skill. And God, there are people who are just so brilliant, so brilliant at it. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I know what you're talking about. It's weird. It makes me think that the audience is smarter than we give them credit for. Because when when the line occurs to you and you use it and it lands, it's totally authentic. Then when you, when you package it and you bring it with you to New York and you use it, it is, it's not that the line itself isn't authentic, but the it's now inauthentic because you've planned it and they mm-hmm. can sense that in that little space, they can mm-hmm. sense it. I feel they can sense it. That's very perceptive. I think so too. Um, the audience when they're in audience mode, watching a play or whatever, watching a performance, they are brilliant. And they're always one step ahead of the game. You have to be, if you're a playwright, you know, you have to be super brilliant to be ahead of an audience. When an audience sort of breaks up into individuals and, you know, there's like audience talkbacks and, and so forth, that's when um, they're their collective genius sort of disperses and people start trying to be um, smart or something that interestingly, that's when people get less smart, I think. Um, But yeah, it's funny, isn't it? That the audience is like some sort of very aware animal and it has its own personality and each night the audience personality is different and it's that third uh, wall I guess in in a theatrical experience the the when you put bring the play from the rehearsal room into the theater and the audience is suddenly there it changes the performance it changes the play so much because there's this entity there which is a consciousness and it's your 
in dialogue with it somehow and it, it's influencing you and you're influencing it and it's a bizarre i don't know how to describe it really but it's a it's like i don't know it's like it's a bit like there's a genius there you know there's another intelligence there mm. and you cannot fool it you cannot fool you it you can't it's never worked i've never yeah. been able to fool it <laughs> and i keep i also keep trying which is so stupid I keep trying and it keeps not working. Well, we all do. We all do. I mean, that's the nature of performance. We're always trying and then then we're learning, okay, don't try, just be. And we're always learning that. We're always relearning it in life too. So whether it's sound check or it's a dress rehearsal, without that electrifying organism of the audience, um, you can only practice so much. And then, exactly. and then that, right. That why once that comes in, the molecules change. Yes. And it inspires you to have different moments, have different thoughts that you would never have had before, you know, before in a, in a rehearsal or that you wouldn't have had on your own. It's an input um, that's completely separate from you. Uh, it's, it's really, quite a strange phenomenon and 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 wonderful you know i mean that is it's a transforming at its best theater is a transformative experience for the audience and for the performers and it's happened because of this symbiotic relationship um which is a mystery and and will remain one because you don't know who's going to be in the audience yeah. What it's going to be like. Have you, are you good at reading the room? Have you been somebody who can at least tune in to the feel of that organism when you play? Have you become better at sort of reading, reading that room? I think, you know, the moment an actor sets foot on stage, you've got your nerves kind of hanging out of your body, <laughs> unless you're in your hundred millionth performance and you're just asleep or something, you're hyper aware immediately in the first few seconds, really, of the energy of the audience. And you, I suppose, behave and act accordingly. You go, oh, okay, I see. I see where you're at, I think. Yeah. <laughs> You strange animal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But don't get too comfortable because you can yeah, lose Yeah, but don't get seconds. comfortable. Do not. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I mean, that's why you have to be in the moment. You know, as an actor, you're always, your job is to really put your attention on the other actor. And, and um, uh, your job is to, is to um, achieve your goal, whatever it is you've decided is the goal of the scene, right? The underlying um, action of the scene. So you're always acting. And that's interesting when you see somebody um, acting in order to get something, right? It's not interesting seeing an actor all tied up in like, how am I being perceived? And how should I adjust myself to be perceived in, in a certain way that that immediately becomes dead, deadening.
it's like you have to somehow remove that element of the ego. Exactly. And that's what you're striving to do in yoga. And, you know, the ego is such a mischief maker and always finds ways to, to come up and reassert itself, you know, even when you're unaware of it. Um, but when you're in a, for example, if you're in a scene and your concentration is on how how am I am I succeeding in getting what I'm trying to get from this other actor or am I not succeeding? Because your attention is all on. It's kind of like an animal hunting, right? The attention is completely on something that's not itself. I mean, I don't know if you can say an animal has an ego. I mean, maybe they're lucky and they don't because they that you we say they they're not conscious, self conscious in the same way mm. as we are. <clears throat> But um, that's when the life comes into the performance. But talk about a trick you can't master. I mean, the ego, <laughs> that's a, that is a tricky one. Yeah, yes, it is, because um, it, it wants to be king. And it's so very demanding and so very fragile. You know, you can hurt its feelings <laughs> so very easily. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, we all, uh, but when we can get rid of that I, that subjective entity, and become mm, uh, sort of just a being, that's when we can explore, that's when we can get into experiencing great joy. When we, we, we cast off the delimitations of, you know, I'm a woman, this is my race, this is my caste creed, you know, this is my status, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I'm a, I'm a, a daughter, I'm a, this is what I mean to this person, this is what I mean to that person, you know, who am, I am all of these things that attach me to this as my one of my yoga teachers would say, mundane existence. <laughs> Not that I think that relationships with, with people, uh, uh, important people, is a mundane thing. I don't at all. I mean, that's what I live. I mean, I live for my, my family. I love my family. I'm very close with my family and, and my dear friends, you know. Um, but... <clears throat> <clears throat> At the same time, you know, that practice <clears throat> of becoming <clears throat> sort of more enlightened is about um, disattaching yourself from that, that small self and attaching yourself, communing with, with your higher self, right? What they would say is your self-realization. That's what we... That's what people strive for in yoga, and that's what the yogis, uh, some great yogis, can achieve. It's not a, I don't think it's a, a thing that most human beings can achieve, not, not, af not before they've lived several, <laughs> several lives. Yeah. And, and we can, you know, if you don't go for that, you can talk, you can talk about one, your own life as, as a kind of series of different eras and, different iterations of life. Can you 
have it on a Wednesday and lose it on a Thursday and yeah. be okay with that? Oh, yeah. You do. You will lose it on a Thursday if you have it on a Wednesday. Because you're not, you know, only the, only the highly qualified, you know, we're not sitting in a cave in the Himalayas, you know. We're, we're here in, uh, in Hollywood. <laughs> in <my case>. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and, you know, you know, um, Guruji BKS Iyengar says that yoga, you, you can bring yoga into daily life and into the life of being a householder and all of that. And that's what I think, you know, students of his students strive for. In that transaction, with the audience mm. where if you, if you just, if you're nailing it and they're responding, the animal is responding mm -hmm. and you're aware of it is the awareness seems to me like it could be a curse and a blessing at the same time. Cause it could make you too aware. Right. Mm -hmm. And then exactly. you kind of go, Oh, this thing I'm doing is working. And then we get back to what we were talking about, where I'm going to keep doing more of the thing that's working, and then it's probably not going to work anymore. Yeah, I was talking to Larry Klein once. Um, he's a, a friend, and, and um, he produced several of my records, and he also produced Joni Mitchell for many years. And he said that she said once um, that when she's performing and she has the thought, oh, this is going well, that's the moment when everything goes wrong. Right, because she's suddenly, the ego has asserted itself. You know, you're suddenly distracted. You're not in the flow of being the artist or, you know, what singing the song, whatever you're doing. You're outside of it all of a sudden. And this happens all the time. Our mind is always, you know, fluctuating in and out, in and out. You just have to. You know, there's a great speech in the play Oleana where the professor is saying, you know, does the, the when the airline pilot has a, a disturbing thought, does he say, oh my God, now I've had this disturbing thought, I must crash the plane because obviously I'm not in, in the flow of crashing the plane. I'm not, I'm, I'm not being an airline pilot. I'm thinking this thing. So obviously this is the end. No, he says... Oh, that was weird. Let's get back into flying the plane. <laughs> so that's what we all have to do, you know, with with these thoughts. And and really, I suppose a, a certain level of maturity is being able to say, ah, that was a thought about. It seemed to be about this thing, and it it had these feelings attached to it. Hmm. Okay, I'm going to let that go. Isn't it funny that that came up now? I wonder why. I'm, in fact, I don't even wonder why I'm getting back into flying the plane. When you're on stage, is it fair to say there could be 20 or 30 moments where you have to get back to flying the plane? Oh, God, yes. A hundred, <laughs> a hundred moments. Yeah. Yeah. All the time. Our, our minds are just so fast. So fast. I wonder if there's also a layer where you think like, I need to get back to flying the plane. And by the way, I'm noticing I'm having thoughts about how I need to get back to flying the plane. So now yeah. you've got layers of it. That's called, that's what actors call, um, there's a name for that. 
the hell is it? It's like um, when they fr you freak yourself out. It's just a, another way for your mind to be mischievous. It does happen, though. It can happen. Um, it's something to to just not be too nervous about and not not be too worried about. It's just the character of the mind. Just you just have to realize, okay, this is happening. It might mean that my performance is not going to be very enjoyable for me. It's okay. I'm just my mind is just being mischievous. Mm. Which the mind will do. Yeah. I'll get through it. You know, 11 o'clock always comes. <laughs> and, and you know, on those nights when you think, God, I just did not do it. I didn't feel it tonight. I just wasn't happening. And you go and speak to somebody in the audience. They don't notice. They never notice. Mm -mm. Um, and by the way, an audience, it can be very, very responsive and not be audible. And, and, and also, we can read the audience wrong, too. Like, actors hate it when audiences are quiet. After they've been, like, really laughy the first night or something or the previous night, and then they're just silent the next night, actors go, oh, God, they hated me. They hated me, darling. It's just going terribly. And uh, <laughs> But that's not true. They're just plugged in but in a very, in a different way so you have to not let that bother you as well but that's ego again right because the ego is needing a, a validation of someone to know that hey this is going well yeah right yeah i think so i taught a class a couple of days ago and during the middle i thought like i'm terrible at this why am i still doing this it's been 30 yeah. years and i'm i'm yeah. awful at this yeah oh god yeah awful yeah and on the way out this student said to me that was the best class I've ever had. And I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> How is that possible? Yeah. How did I read you that wrong and feel yeah. that awful about my craft? Well, you've been teaching for 30 years. And so all of your knowledge and expertise comes through without your being conscious of it. You know, So I think you, you, you have to on those nights for an actor or like after a class where you feel like you didn't serve the play or you didn't serve the lesson and they didn't, the students didn't get it, or the audience didn't get it. You have to trust, wait, I've, I've invested not just an hour into this, but my whole life, you know, and so there's something going on within me that, that's, that's conveying itself that's of worth, you know. Has it helped you as a civilian, like when you're not playing, has this helped you also read a room at a party or talking to, to two people at a coffee shop? Has it helped you also in your, in your real quotidian life? I don't, uh, it's a good question. Um, I'm not sure. I've never really thought about it like that. Uh, I think I'm pretty good at reading, reading a situation. Um, having known some people who are just actually kind of blind in, in that, in that regard, I think I'm pretty good at it. I don't doesn't make me a very confident person. I mean, some people, um, you know, I'm not the life and soul. I'm not that person. Um, and I know a lot of people who are, especially in my profession, you know, very charismatic life and soul kind of people. And they, they might walk into a room and go, oh, Christ, this is dead. Right. I'm going to bring it to life, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. 
but uh, I'm not a person who I don't really get a lot of energy from being in social groups too much. I'm I'm more of an introvert. I like to I sort of recharge on my own or with a s small group of maybe family or something. Um, so if I go to a party, I always need to recover afterwards. And what does that look like? Does that, is that just you being alone? Um, yes, or just with my partner or, you know, just or like reading a book to get me back into sanity, you know, like an old friend, a book, mm. very comforting. Certain um, authors, you know, just, oh, thank you. Back, back to sanity. because I, I find that most people who perform in their life as their vocation, as their, as their heart and soul, most of them seem to be introverted, which is yeah. counterintuitive. Yeah. Yeah, that is. I mean, some people can be introverts and use something and seem like an extrovert or just use the energy that they're feeling in the moment and seem like an extrovert and, and pour out tons of energy and then like have to go home and take a nap. Right. Right. Cause the bandwidth is gone. Exactly. You've just overloaded it. When you play live, 
and people are there to see you and it's your name. Um, is it, this is a weird question. Is it you or is it a projection of you? Um, and can you separate, can you separate the two? Mm. Oh yeah, you can definitely separate. I mean, if you can't separate the two, then you're, then you're going into insanity really. I mean, you know, um, people who have had problems with that actors, you know, playing certain roles have become too in their imagination somehow sort of embroiled in the role and then kind of have this um, vertigo feeling that they've lost themselves and just uh, like have a breakdown, you know. Um, but uh, in terms of a live show music, I think it's much more me than it would be if they were coming to see me in a play, definitely. Mm. Um, but having said that, there are songs in which I'm playing a character, for example. It's not really me when I'm screaming into the microphone, you know, I will destroy you, as I do in this one of these songs that I wrote called Rudra Deva. Um, so that's certainly, <laughs> that's certainly <laughs> not me. <laughs> <laughs> but there are some songs which are more personal about my own personal journey. Uh, yeah. And also when you're speaking to the audience, that's when you don't have lines and you really are yourself. And that is a naked feeling. And that that is, that might be yourself in a kind of um, a, a, a shy mood, right? Or like yeah. a nervous mood, not yourself you know we're are, you know we have all sorts of different facets of ourselves who we are with different people and in different circumstances and so forth but it's an aspect and certainly more as i said you know i'm not i'm not all the way through the set playing another character it is me thinking what the hell am i going to say to this audience <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, i know i'll just sing another song yeah. 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 And it's, it seems like that separation is important. I think that I didn't understand the, the true genius of David Bowie until I realized that everyone said, Oh, Bowie was so great because he played all these characters. And I thought David Bowie was character. That's what was so brilliant is he built all those characters on top of a foundation that wasn't even him because he was Davy Jones. Right. So it's mm -hmm. like, he created the Bowie characters that he could project all these things onto that. That yeah. character was strong enough to hold all those characters. Yes. So he was protected, Rebecca, the entire time. He was never in danger. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah, he was so brilliant. You know, he and both uh, he and Kate Bush were both very, very influenced by Lindsay Kemp, who was a performer, um, a mime artist um, in London and, and had this company and did this hugely influential show called flowers and they both saw it at a young age i think and then both went to work with him so bowie studied mime with him i believe um and kate bush studied with him too Mo body movements you know he was mm. a he was a dancer and a mime artist and and a um a performer and made these extraordinary characters. And I think that was profoundly influence, influential on both of them. The theatricality to both of their yeah. bodies of work is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, it helps to be a genius as well, which is bushes too. Yeah, being a genius doesn't hurt. Right. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I don't know uh, how. Who knows about the happiness quotient in people's lives? I don't know if it's. I don't. I. I think being a genius might be a bit lonely. Because, who is there for you to commune with? Um, I live with a genius, you know, so I think that there's, and uh, one of his great friends, Ricky Jay, who was also a genius, our dear friend, um, died. So I think my husband's been a bit lonely. Um, I'm trying to fill in the gap. Mm. Well, the, the Ricky Jay gap is a big one. He's, I mean, what a, <laughs> what an absolute titanic talent. Yeah. 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 Have you... Have you always thought of yourself as a as a brave person? You know, mo say moving to London as a as an eighteen year old, or um, or even just like playing this this um, this song cycle, this new song cycle, which I just love. Um, but it's very intimate music. Playing that on stage to me seems very brave. Um, all of those things, as we kind of reverse engineer your life, have you always demonstrated bravery, at least artistically? Have you thought of yourself in that way? Uh, I've felt um, afraid and I've felt in performances uh, afraid on stage and then I've felt a, a sense that uh, must be bravery, I suppose, of your, your fear does not matter. You will do this thing. And, and, and a kind of... Um, bolstering from a sort of higher urge a kind of bolstering of yes you are vulnerable and what's the worst that could happen the worst that could happen is you could die is that so bad and i just go kind of well, no i guess not i'm gonna die anyway um there's a great sense of release and freedom in that thought of of um, having a a principle or having a a thing to say or having a thing to do that you must do, even though you're afraid, and then so that that fact that you must do it somehow, and there's and then somehow after that fact, you, you realize that fact, and then there's then there's some sort of urge that supports you. Um, so, I mean, I think there's a certain strength in, in uh, owning your vulnerability as well and just going, oh, fuck it. Okay. Yes, I'm vulnerable. This is me. This is it. You know, <laughs> make it or leave it. You know, it's okay. Um, but I, I'm in my life, you know, I, I'm, I often feel fear and, and that's something I think it's a human, in, deeply ingrained in our human condition. And it's something I think we need to, um, to work with and to um, calm and soothe and by a connection, by, by some sort of spiritual practice. 
so that we can come into a stage of being unafraid because that's the stage that's the only stage where we will recognize and experience the joy and the miracles of life and and gratitude a state of gratitude so when fear kicks in i mean but, i think that's where anger comes from too you know that's right yeah mhm the other side of that probably yeah so when you get afraid because you are a human being and when fear comes in mm -hmm. what is the mechanism to counter that what do you how do you troubleshoot fear well i think that you have to have an ongoing practice some sort of whatever it is for you i believe in religion i mean i understand that that's a dirty word and that religions have gone very vastly wrong um and they've been corrupted and so forth but you know also um sec uh, um secular life um you know like things like um you know political parties which became monstrous um were also responsible for death and destruction so i mean i i feel like uh, it it's actually not just one thing or just the other it's the human condition we are capable of going um into into atrocities right and atrocious behavior and even towards ourselves as well and uh so one has to have a a practice and one has to attend to one's spiritual life and spiritual needs and so that when you're doing that as a part of your life that becomes a sort of habitual go-to whatever whatever techniques you've built up becomes becomes your bolster in that in that time of of when you're when you're compromised you know and when you're you've sunk into whatever it is because you know our intelligence levels decline dramatically when we're afraid or so when we're angry our IQs plummet you know i think that's been demonstrated we make bad decisions just right away you know yeah. just the wrong thing is always going to happen um and so techniques that we can learn i mean just practical techniques of just from simple things like db dialectical behavioral therapy or cognitive therapy you know like just walking away literally just removing yourself physically from a situation to to um more m more sort of advanced and mature techniques depending on the kind of discipline that you have um you know there's this saying where i love this saying in psychology where you're in the green and then there's some little things that tell you you're going into the yellow zone right but we're usually unaware of being in the yellow zone it's like a little i'm a, i'm getting irritated now i'm getting ugh, i'm feeling i'm feeling burdened i'm feeling a bit overwhelmed i'm feeling a bit like i might snap at you now right and that that escalates but people don't realize oh wait a minute this is yellow zone behavior <laughs> right 
and yellow zone is going to take me into red zone where I can't be retrieved and I'm going to do terrible, stupid things. But if you can notice yourself moving into, wait, okay, I recognize this. I'm saying stupid things to my husband right now. I'm being combative. I'm, um, I'm being a bit manic, you know. I'm, I see that I need to, I need to calm down. I just need to calm down a little bit. I'm going to go and, you know, breathe, or I'm going to go read this book, which I know calms me down. I'm going to, so you untie yourself from, from those sort of shackles which are dragging you down. You can untie yourself at a, at, at a stage, you can, at the, in the yellow zone, you know. The, the the yellow zone gives you that moment. There's that grace period in the yeah. yellow zone where you can reverse it, mm-hmm. or you can be you can be uh, temporarily lost. Yep. There's yeah. a place. There's a place. I mean, sometimes you zoom right into it. I mean, especially like if you're in the car or something, and somebody cuts you off, and then like gives you the finger and shouts at you or something. You like you immediately become. It's like, oh, whoa, okay, there is a murderer inside me. Okay, <laughs> let's, um, let's just calm completely down. Yeah, because you, 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 get, you get this flush of rage. Anyway, so we're all human. We all have all sorts of facets of our personality, and we all have to learn to control our senses and to control our emotions and to and 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 i think that there's 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 ways to do that which are uh pretty um uh what's the word practical it also makes me think that a psychologist surely must have devised the traffic light um with the with the red the yellow and the green as prompts (laughs) absolutely oh i see what you're saying the traffic light yeah yeah (laughs) I know. God. Are you, if you feel temperamental, if you feel combative, you have gotten to the point in your life where you can shepherd yourself out of the red zone. I'm much, much, much better than I used to be. Oh God, world's different. Mm. Yeah, world's different. Is that, so it's like, is it less reactionary? Is that what it is? Yes, and I also know myself much, much better. So I can learn to recognize these these signs in myself, these behaviors, or also, you know, physical feelings. Oh, my heart's beating a bit faster, and I'm feeling flushed, and I, I've, I'm, I'm confused. That's a big sign for me. I'm feeling confused. Mm. That's like being like a sign. I need to take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> you can feel sort of emotionally disoriented, that kind of confusion. Yes, yes. yes. Right? And that's going to deposit you somewhere. Mm-hmm. That's going to be bad unless I take a breath and walk away from it. What I, what I love about um, this album is that it feels novelistic to me. It feels like there is a beginning and there is a middle and there is an end, which is not in the digital age, as common perhaps as it used to be. But I still listen to music that way, where it feels like a book, where it feels like a, 
a complete experience. Mm. And I've always loved that about your work, but especially now, this just feels like a, like a cycle to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, and I'm, I'm guessing that's how it was intended. Mm. Yes, it is a, a, a song cycle and it's a concept album and it, I wrote the songs in the order in which they appear on, on the record. Wow. And it's um, basically a journey through the chakra theory uh, in, uh, in yoga, which I've been learning about. I started learning about it during the lockdown COVID, and I started working with a teacher in Mumbai because all the teachers were um, working on Zoom. So I was able to join a local class, but also um, the Iyengar family um, took their teachings online. And so Abhijata Iyengar started teaching Zoom classes, but also Prashant Iyengar um, just moved onto YouTube and started just this just flood of, and it's still going on, of teaching. Just, he's a master. Uh, and so I just became really um, deeply uh, fascinated, fascinated by his, his work and his teaching. And, and that's what led me to writing these songs. Not that they're, um, they're, they're not supposed to be songs in which I'm teaching anything because I'm not at all. I'm a student. I'm just exploring things, and it's not it's not yoga music and it's not meditation music. It's contemporary pop music. Yeah. Um, it's just that I was writing about my, what I was experiencing. What I love about it is that by the time we get to clouds are clearing, isn't that the, yeah. the close? Mm-hmm. It feels like something's happened like it feels when that song is over it feels like like there's something has occurred and to me that's a really triumphant way to end a work um like all the great novels where you feel like that ending it's like wow like something like nothing's the same and i feel like clouds are clearing which is aptly titled um for for the job that it does and its placement in the album um it feels that there's like a a transformation has happened and it's a really it's it's a really i've listened to the album maybe seven or eight times and Mm. that feeling keeps getting stronger Mm. um and so it's just it's not even a question it's more of like a really long compliment like beautifully done you know thank you so much yeah i mean You know, yoga is supposed to be a transformative experience. It, it, not just a transformative experience, but to lead to your your transformation. And um, I've, I'm certainly f- feeling more and more deeply that it is transformative in my life. Um, I uh, clouds are clearing is my sort of imagining of the aspect, the experience or feeling tone of the Sahasrara chakra, which is the one on the top of the head, which is a a chakra that, a kind of realm that 
I will never experience because I'm not a yogi. Um, but I use the analogy of the weather because they say, you know, that in Samkhya philosophy, there's, there's two main um, concepts. Prakriti, which is broadly translated as nature, and Purusha, which is soul or God, right? So they say Purusha is always there, the self is always there, God is always there, but all this muddiness of nature and our, our mundane experience of right reality clouds it. But when the yogi reaches this supreme stage, the Prakriti has done its job of um, submerging the individual in ignorance, spiritual ignorance, through which he has traveled and uh, uh, it's been shed and shed and shed and shed until finally it's done its job of bringing the yogi to enlightenment and then it just falls away and there is Purusha like the sun behind the clouds. The sun is always there but we don't see it sometimes because it's cl it's clouded over. And then I finish with um, a, a prayer called the Guru Vandana. I put the words of this Guru Vandana um, to a melody to, to close out the album. And that's a little prayer that we say at the beginning of a yoga class, just to acknowledge our, our guru or the and the guru within and the gurus who came before in the lineage um, of gurus. Um, so I wanted to offer, a like, a that as a, as a, a prayer of gratitude, because that's more and more what I feel, you know, I'm so, I'm so grateful for this, uh, that this discipline has come into my life. Um, and I'm so grateful to be experiencing this kind of joy and it feels quite miraculous to me. Yeah. And that there is a miraculous feeling when, when this album finishes, it's, it's interesting. I unconsciously, I listened to it for the first time and then I put on talk talks, um, spirit of Eden. I don't know why I just did. And so I've been listening to spirit of Eden and your new album back to back for the last week and a half. And they're kind of lovely pairings. I don't know why that happened. I don't know if you know that album. Great. I'm going to go listen to it. I'm, I'm sure I do, but I, I, okay, I'm going to listen to it. Yeah. They work really beautifully together. My feeling is you and I are of the same vintage. We grew up around the yeah. same time. Yeah. And my feeling has always been as I've gotten older mm. is as long as I feel like a, the version of myself today mm -hmm. is different. I don't want to say better because that feels ego, but maybe sharper. I don't know. Maybe that's ego too, but different than it was yesterday. I'm okay with getting older. Like I'm fine with it. Mm. I don't feel like I'm, if I feel stagnant or I feel like nothing is progressing in a, in a meaningful way, that would probably terrify me. And I don't feel that way. Mm -hmm. How, what's your own perspective on on that? Aspect? I just want to always feel that I'm lear a learner. Mm. Um, because that's where I feel I'm alive and, and it's so exciting. And I'm just always getting my mind blown. And 
it's it's endless it's endless and it's so big um that that that's what you know words words are it's so difficult to express yourself sometimes when you're trying to express something um that is, has great meaning to you um words sometimes right don't do it um but yes, uh, when we're learning, when we're learners, then we're living. When we shut that off, I think we're kind of dead. And it's a sad state to be in. And it's, you're kind of putting on blinkers and you're not noticing anything around you. Um, and there's staggering miracles going on. I mean, it's easy to get bogged down and to get depressed, you know, the political situation, the situation in the world, all these terrible things happening. It's easy to let that scare you. Um, but we're, we're all here. We're all living together in this world. And, uh, uh, I suppose there's a reason for it, you know, there's a reason why you're here and there's a reason why you have your life and it's it's a meaningful reason. And to search for that meaning is kind of exhilarating and endless and it's like being on a, it's the hero journey, right? Joseph Campbell. Right. Yeah. That's exciting, really exciting. Incredibly. Yeah, it really is. It's also what's interesting to me, the artistic journey is one where take a song like Light Clouds Are Clearing. I would think like, well, that's such a perfect song. Uh, but then but I'm sure you're writing more, right? So like it almost feels like the artistic journey is one that never finishes, right? Like the Beatles didn't just make one album. Mm. <laughs> they made a couple. Mm. And so I always feel like uh, it, it seems silly to, to call myself a, a, a writer, um, but, I, but I am, you know, I, I'm, I'm a writer. And, I, and I, I, if I write something I'm very pleased with, I never think to myself, okay, I'm done. I think like, oh, now, now I'm cooking. Now the journey is getting some pace. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Right? So we're, ne so we're never going to stop. No, no. And there is that, that feeling of, um, okay, okay, I'm getting there. I didn't quite get it with this one, but I'm going to get it with the next one. And then you don't, you fail again and you fail again and again. But um, you know, but, but you can be pleased with your work. Uh, at the moment, I'm actually not writing because I'm doing so much uh, practicing of, of performing. Uh, but I have had some ideas, yes, some ideas that made me think, oh, oh, I want to go into that place. I want to go to there. <laughs> yeah, I've always likened being a, an artist as sort of like, Sisyphusian in the sense that like you're, mm -hmm. you're, the, the point of it is not to get the boulder over the hill. That's not the point. No, exactly. That would defeat the whole 
the whole purpose. It's in the pushing. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I, I just love your album and I've, I've followed your work for years. And I, I just think this one is just, this is my, um, uh, my favorite and I love everything you've ever done. So that's, I say that with a, you know, it's, it's uh, I don't want to hurt the feelings of the other ones because I love them, <laughs> <laughs> but I really, I really find this one so very powerful. Nice you, Alex, it's very nice of you. Thank you. I'm, I'm really glad. Yeah. Um, and I hope, I hope you come towards San Francisco so I can see it live. I don't know if that's. Yeah, I, I, I would really love to, uh, if I get some funding or if I just come up myself. Um, yeah, I can see that happening. And I can see it being crowded. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, I'd love to come up and play. I haven't played in San Francisco for many years. You were here and I missed you. I think you were here in the 90s, mm-hmm. I want to say, and I missed it somehow. But, mm-hmm. these are the th- but I get to talk to you now, so yeah, nobody loses. Um, <laughs> I am so appreciative of your time, and I'm appreciative of your willingness to talk to me like this. So My pleasure, Alex. Thank you very much. Thank you. And really nice to talk to you. I appreciate that, Becca. And congratulations on a beautiful piece of work. Thanks. great that was just a great conversation rebecca pigeon so cool just a really immersive experience with her and uh, we'll bring her back in the meantime go get her music follow her on instagram at rebecca pigeon r-e-b-e-c-c-a-p-i-d-g-e-o-n follow her and uh, and find your way to her music because there's 10 albums and they're all fantastic Start with the new one, work your way backwards, or start with the Raven and work your way forwards, whatever you're comfortable with. Start in the middle if you want, whatever. They're all amazing. Get every single one of them. Uh, AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. I don't have 10 albums, but I do have a couple of books, and there is a new one coming out in the spring of 2023. So get ready for an onslaught of personal, potentially narcissistic self-promotion. Uh, what else can I tell you? You can follow me on Twitter at Ember's Editor. You can follow me on Instagram at Ember's Podcast, or just email me if that makes you more comfortable. Editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Don't forget to check out BombshellRadio.com to find out what makes our radio station tick. And a huge thank you, by the way, to Bombshell Radio for having faith in our program, carrying all 300 episodes, and agreeing to air our next 300,000. <laughs> Well, they didn't really agree to it, but I feel confident they'd be up for it. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate, and review. Tell all your friends, and we thank you in advance for doing all that work. It sounds like a long list, but all of that will take you no time at all. Unless you have a ton of friends, which I hope you do, then you gotta, I don't know what, have a party. Have a party, clink your glass, make an announcement. Two birds, one stone. 
Let's close the show with a longer listen to Clouds Are Clearing from Rebecca Pigeon's new album, Parts of Speech, Pieces of Sound. Enjoy it. And thank you, as always, for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio. the sun